Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. We've got a full house today. Taryn Sharma, Mike Lawson, and our guest, Pete Nakos, sports business reporter over at On3. This is going to be a fun episode, team. Yes, I'm excited. College sports, lively. It's been crazy, very little clarity, and we'll see if we can get a little bit of it through our conversation today. Taryn, there hasn't been clarity in two years. <laughs> well, we got to strive, Mike. If we don't strive towards some sort of clarity, we'll be, I don't know, begging Congress for an antitrust exemption or something. We're getting close. We're getting close. So 19 months into the NIL era, we have not had any sniff of litigation. You know, the purpose of today was to try to get some clarity. Again, like 19 months in what's happening. So we didn't record an episode of this. I think, Taryn, last time, um, you think you recorded Evan. Maybe it had just come out or it's worthy of a full breakdown in any event. So this episode, we are only going to talk about issues impacting the NCAA, the NIL era, state law, you know, really whatever comes up. But we thought it important to dedicate a specific episode. Uh, and, you know, I guess for our purposes, we'll call this a fireside chat. So Pete Nakos, uh, your name is kind of, you kind of come out of nowhere, Pete, where you can we'll give you flowers, but you're really on the ball with a lot of interesting collective stories. I know you're in the weeds. Uh, a lot of these really important stories, the Jaden Rashada piece, you know, again, 19 months in, a lot of things have changed. I, and we'll talk about it a little bit, tax season's around the corner. I think there are more changes in the next six to eight months. We'll see. Uh, the NCA is certainly percolating. So, you know, we we reached out to, uh, we put the kind of SOS out on social media for people to give us topics. We certainly had a couple in mind, but I think where we should start this conversation is the biggest story at the center of the college sports world. That is not the number one quarterback in the country, not the number two, not the three, not the four, not the five, the seventh ranked quarterback in the country who might have signed the largest NIL deal, but then that deal Taryn, I have a question. If you sign an NIL deal and the NIL deal ceases to exist, did you sign an NIL deal at all? Is that, is that how it works? I guess we uh, will find out. Witnesses, witnesses, legal podcast. So Pete, we'll give you the mic. Kind of uh, lead our listeners, and I'm sure people have heard of Jaden Rashada. They've heard of the Gator Collective. They've heard of Miami's involvement. They've heard of Ruiz. But for this particular story, all of them kind of combined together in an amalgamation of a very interesting uh, sports law story. So Pete, the floor is yours. Um, I tend to think this is the biggest story in the NIL space as, as of today. First, thanks for having me on, guys. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's we're 19 months in, as you mentioned, and uh, it is by far, in a way, the biggest NIL story that we have seen. So obviously, just a quick breakdown, Jaden Rashada flips his commitment to from Miami to Florida in November. At the time, the prominent Florida booster, Hugh Havcock, tweets, tweets about it, kind of tries to preview the news coming, and that's kind of the inclination that NIL is playing a factor in this. And from there, obviously, Florida fans celebrate. They, they really stuck it to Miami. They landed their quarterback. And then early December, it turns out, um, Jaden Rashada receives a termination letter for an NIL contract that he signed at the time of the flip. And as we all know now, it was worth $13.85 million. He was supposed to get $500,000 upon his commitment. Actually, that, that, that payment was due on December 5th. Turns out that he only received $125,000 and early January last month, he requests for his NLI to be released. Uh, he gets released and, and now he is at Arizona State where he has made no cash. Pete, before you jump into that, we prefaced it that this was an astronomical deal and you said it too. And you said the 500 grand up front, but do you know that the splits of what he was supposed to get, what, what was it, per month? believe it was uh, $200,000 per month over four years. And, Money, and that number was going to, yeah. And I, I believe the 200,000 was for the first year and then it was going to jump up. And by the fourth year, it would jump back down. 
There's a great article on The Athletic that, if you haven't seen it, um, Andy Staples and Stuart Mandel, but at $250,000 a month as a uh, freshman, $291,666 a month as a sophomore, $375,000 a month as a junior, and then it would drop down, like you said, uh, to 195,833 might have to scrape by as a senior. Well, let's pause here. And we should mention, Pete, you're with On3, which I think is quickly becoming the top NIL publication in the country. I know you guys do other things at On3, but I rely on you for your On3 sources. You and uh, Jeremy Crabtree, those are the the, the two names. That I'm very we appreciate that. Of course. And Hayes Fawcett. Shout out Hayes. to Hayes. Yep. He's well, a great job in recruiting. You know, Taryn does shout out the athletic piece, and there is some good reporting here. So we, we, you know, we've had some athletic guys on in the past, but Pete, you're our guest today. But a friend of the show has a quote in this article, Gabe Feldman, which I think is important for us to analyze as, you know, we'll say the NIL expert and the the three lawyers, right? Gabe Feldman, and they talk about the Gator Collective's first payment to Rashada for $500,000 was due December 5th. It would have come before Rashada enrolled at Florida. The Athletic asked Gabe Feldman, a Tulane Law School professor who specialized in sports law, to review specific clauses in Rashada's contract with the Gator Collective. Now, before I tell you what Gabe Feldman says, Gabe Feldman is like, well, I would say, one of two like godfathers of sports law. Him and Michael McCann are like the two guys. So Gabe Feldman is giving a comment. Gabe Feldman is he's one of the main guys in the, the history of the NCAA. I think Gabe's pretty fair. I don't I don't think he has any bias. I'm not sure. I'm not aware that he has any clients in this particular space. So Gabe Feldman has asked the particular question. I would pay attention to Feldman's response. The fact, and as you know, we were kind of joking offline, sometimes I get called for different interviews. I like to speak on background. I rarely like to go on the record unless it's something that I think is kind of innocuous. So Feldman goes on the record and says, quote, just the contact with the athlete prior to enrollment and using it as a recruiting inducement. That seems pretty cut and dry based on the timing, said Feldman. Under every version of the NCAA policy, that's problematic. So we're going to talk a little bit about the termination clause in a minute. But the fact that Feldman went on the record with that particular comment, basically calling the entire Gator Collective operation, I mean, I don't want to say the whole operation, but at least this particular contract, seems to be violated on, on its face of the NCAA law. I find that to be very interesting. That is not an anonymous source. That is one of perhaps the sources of, of sports law. So um, Mike and Taryn, I'll, I'll kind of give that to you. Were you surprised that, that Gabe went on the record? I mean, I respect the hell out of Gabe. That was surprising, at least to me. Um, maybe I'm the only one. Absent any other context, I think that he's correct. But in this case, and Mike, maybe you can offer some feedback on this. If Caspino, who is representing the Rashadas in these uh, recruiting dealings, if he is reaching... Allegedly, allegedly. Let's let's allegedly, use yeah. We don't know this. Sure. Uh, if he allegedly reaches out to a coaching staff or a collective and speaks about the Rashada situation, what they're expecting, does that then kind of nullify the, the one, the contact piece that Feldman mentions, and then the inducement piece? Not that we have a definition for inducement anyway. I mean, if Caspino does it, I mean, if he's acting as an agent for somebody else, that's not necessarily going to, again, allegedly, but purge, purge the wrongdoing. If somebody asked Caspino to reach out on behalf of someone else, right, whether it's a direct inducement, an indirect inducement, you can't get around it by the fact that somebody else is a a pass through, you know, I wouldn't think so. I wasn't necessarily just to go back to your original question, Dan, I wasn't necessarily surprised that Gabe 
chimed in. I mean, Michael McCann does this a lot too. You know, he's not afraid to put himself out there. Gabe is more, I guess, reserved in that sense. So maybe he picks his more, spots. He picks his spots. Gabe he picks his spots. Right. He he's more you know particular about what he wants to say. But I think it's because it's in such a sphere that is the unknown. We're still in the unknown, and Gabe is very very intelligent in this this sphere. And I think you know there needs to be a definition of inducement and he's trying to paint, at least draw a line in the sand to give some clarity on this because there has been way too many, and we're going to talk about collectives down the line, but there's been way too many blurred lines when it comes to inducements. And, you know, just like what I think Feldman was talking about the contact before he's even signed his, his national letter of intent, you know, right that's always been recruiting violations before there's been there's periods that you're allowed to contact somebody and and discuss these things and now there's no rules so they just uh, they've been floating on this blurred line so they're trying to draw a line in the sand i think gabe was smart enough to to pick you know like you said he he chose to to be uh particular here and he he wanted to draw that line i would just mention real quick so right we're 19 months in there was the case of Tennessee with an $8 million quarterback. That that was a direct recruiting inducement. He committed within three weeks. Um, I also really think it's important to say, so the NCAA, right, a booster cannot have contact with an athlete during the, the, the recruitment process. And in, in this situation, the Gator Collective had direct contact. So from my understanding, that, that would be a direct violation of the NCAA policy. So I think Gabe's spot on on this one. Yeah. So, I mean, Mike, you said something, right? There are no rules. And we've we've had some fun on this podcast. Like, you know, if there are uh, if there are rules, but they're not being enforced, it's almost like there are no rules. But this is part of the conversation that we wanted to get into today. And, and certainly on three was on top of this reporting. The NCAA seems like they want to all of a sudden uh, use those uh, those fangs. Right. They want to uh, they're sharpening their teeth, I guess. It took them 19 months to get their act together, um, but they're making you know, kind of a hiring blitz. They want to change uh, the standard that we you know, we joked about. Taryn, I think you guys covered it briefly, but this now guilty until proven innocent standard. And you can use um, indirect and circumstantial evidence to prove violations where things get tricky. Right. Is that for 19 months. I think everyone assumed, Mike, like just like we've talked about in this podcast, that like, hey, Nancy is not going to do anything about it. Let's go ahead. Let's let's have some fun in that gray area. You know, people can use their their imagination as to what we might be talking about, but that never meant it was okay, right? There's a concept in the law which I guess somewhat applies here. This concept's called acquiescence, right? If you don't say anything, you just kind of let the thing happen. There, are, in some in some legal situations, you've acquiesced to you've given your acceptance that something is okay, some particular code of conduct. That's not the case with the NCA. Quite the contrary, right? The NCA waived their bylaw to, you know, back in July 1st or whatever that was, the 10 days prior to the NIL era, waived the ability to punish athletes for receiving compensation. That was not necessarily going to waive the the rules in the books with respect to improper inducements. So, you know, there's this farce, right? If an athlete gets to a university, be it a Texas or North Carolina or Tennessee, they've stepped foot on campus and they're enrolled, Right. I guess it's no longer an inducement. You can then give that athlete some some money. The trick becomes, or the tricky part, is if the athlete is given some amount of money and the contract seems to allegedly, reportedly, because we haven't seen a copy of it over here, maybe Pete, you have, but require the athlete to be located in a particular jurisdiction here, be it Gainesville. So 
that seems to be some form of a contingency, some form of a, hey, we'll pay you if you do X, you do Y. But Taryn, I know we were talking about it briefly before the, the mic started going. What do you think about this termination clause? I mean, you, you got to see a piece of it, at least in the, um, you know, in the athletic piece. How do you think that factors in here? If it's enforceable, I think that it protects the collective and any other parties that were involved from being held up on a breach claim because, and by the way, the the way that this is written where the collective can for any reason or no reason at all, cancel the deal at any time for any number of reasons, including not living in Gainesville anymore. If the contract is found to violate school rules or rules that the school must follow like NCAA rules, if it's found to violate Florida law, that leeway for the collective to be able to cancel that, I, I think that that, if I were advising the student here, I don't think that I would ever allow them to sign something like this. I know that he had lawyers that were supposedly looking out for him, but I, I just don't see how they thought that that was okay. It, it's such a imbalanced power structure as it is. And then when you add the contractual language in here, if that's enforceable, I think that that's like a very good source of protection for the collective. Pete, do we know when this contract was dated? I mean, I don't know if you can tell us this. I I haven't seen it if we we have it. I have not obtained the contract, but I was told by multiple sources it was dated November. I think the date was, was November 10th. So it was dated November 10th. I mean, let's go over this this concept of unconscionability, another fun just contractual issue here. So the term unconscionability, if it's if you actually have it met, is when one term, just reading a concept, uh, I think people know it when they see it in a legal sense, but we don't have all entire legal audience. An unconscionable contract or an unconscionable, an unconscionable clause is a clause that is so severely one-sided and unfair to one of the parties that it is deemed unenforceable under law. Unconscionability in contract law means that the contract is one that leaves one of the parties with no real meaningful choice, typically due to significant differences in bargaining power. So, you know, both sides, uh, we've talked about them here again, allegedly, we're not going to get in trouble here. Allegedly, both sides are represented by counsel on both sides of the contract. I might think, and Terry, we were talking about this offline, that that provision that the collective can terminate at any time and they're, for any reason in their absolute sole discretion I might say that that doesn't seem to be enforceable. That seems type of, kind of odd. But then if Rashada's people came to the table with their own representation and the collective came with their own representation and there's no form of duress, there was no like, I asked when the date was, Pete, to see if there was some type of deadline that we didn't know about. But, you know, I, it's possible this is going to be enforceable. But I, I would find it, Taryn, to your point, very odd that someone would allow a client to sign this just, you know, freely and assuming that, that nothing could go wrong, right? The payments, as we've talked about, are $200,000 a month and the collective can just cut it off whenever they want. Pete, Mike, Taryn, I guess this is for you, right? Wasn't there a point in time where we were not going to base payments off of like actual performance? And then what if this is just a precursor? Let's say Rashada wasn't playing that well as a Florida Gator and they cut him. What would happen then? Taryn, do you, do you think they could just cut him then? Or then we would say, it's, hey, that was probably based on performance, that he's now a third stringer and he's not playing. I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? That they could just en- enforce this clause at any time. So maybe to your point, that does make it unconscionable. I think that also, and I touched on this a little bit, the power dynamic as it stands, because we were discussing this article in uh, in the class that I teach. NIL uh, professor, Taryn Sharma. Yeah, at the, at the University of Minnesota, we were talking about this with my class. And somebody said, you know, what if it's a situation where 
they just say, okay, well, we'll just go to the the next four-star quarterback, either the number six guy or the number eight guy, and they're going to get the money instead if they're willing to sign the contract as it is. One of the students that we represented earlier this semester, I'm not going to say who or the school, it wasn't ours, but we read through their contract. We did review for them. We sent back a red line to the uh, the party that was offering it, and they basically told us to F off. They were like, we're not going to negotiate this. Other student athletes have signed this deal. And so we said to the student athlete, like, look, you can sign this. It's not really in your favor. It's not a very well-written contract. You don't necessarily want to be giving up these things. But if it's very important to you that you get involved with this group, go ahead and do it. And so they ended up signing it. So maybe it's a situation like that where the student athlete is uh, on their own recognizance signing the contract anyway. But I think that the power dynamics are such that this is possibly more frequent than we even know because we haven't seen all of the contracts that get signed. Yeah, totally. The one thing I wanted to add real quick, and obviously I'm not going to bring the legal side to it, but I think it's extremely irresponsible for both parties to sign a four-year contract, right? So on one end, you have an NIL collective that probably doesn't have the cash in the bank to fund a $13 million contract. Um, when it's signed. And then at the same time, um, an athlete wants to transfer or something like that, it, it, it they would then have to terminate the contract. And it just seems that some collectives I've talked to after this, it, it seems like the, the best route is just to sign a one-year deal and then renegotiate after that freshman year is done. Yeah, there'll be probably options or something like that. I could see that. I, I thought about that too. I was curious on, on the length of the, and the duration of these contracts, especially we were just talking about Rashada, like the way that his was laid out. So definitively month by month, not just like year by year. Dan, I wanted to, I wanted to go back to what you're talking about, you know, talking about unconscionability and unenforceable clauses and things like that. The first thing that I thought of, I would say, I haven't looked at the contract. I don't think anybody has seen the contract, but he, he has seen it, but he's not telling us about it. <laughs> no, no, I have not obtained it. I have not there's, seen it. There's usually also severability clauses in here. So yeah, yeah. you're fighting over the contract, right? This is, this ends up, you know, in litigation, you're fighting over the clauses in the contract. If they're fighting over that one particular clause that this was unconscionable, unenforceable, then there's a severability clause that says, okay, we'll pull that out and the rest of the contract, you know, is valid. And if that's the case, then Rashada's, you know, due compensation, I guess. I don't know. Is that because he got pushed out now that he's not even at the school? You know, he's not with the collective. There's issues in that too. But there's also the piece that we were just talking that Taryn was just saying, and it actually sparked my thought is I remember, I remember back in law school, we had the hypotheticals of like, you know, signing a contract under duress or undue influence or under the, you know, when you're, when you're drunk, you know, under the influence, I should say, also poses a contract to be unenforceable in certain cases, right? So are these, you know, illegal tactics that these collectives are using by not allowing, not, you know, putting into uh, like proper negotiations in here, putting in unconscionable clauses and said, and telling people who are trying to help them, well, F off because we can get Joe Schmo to come in and he'll sign it and he doesn't give a crap. So there's going to be probably some issues with that in the litigation sphere as we move forward with the new rules too. Can I tell you something else interesting? I mean, again, at some point I'd hope to see to get a copy of the actual contract that we're talking about with this Rashada business, but there are, speaking Mike, of severability and survivability. Sometimes their contract will, will terminate, right? Sometimes it'll it'll lapse, it'll just expire. Other times it'll terminate for for some reason, someone ex, you know, exercises a termination clause. That doesn't mean that all the provisions in that contract itself will terminate. Just by way of example, right? You have indemnification clause, you have duties to defend. 
Can you imagine, right, if there is some type of litigation that results in this and someone, right, you know, to the extent like the collective gets sued, right, someone might have to, you know, the athlete might have to defend them if a third party ends up, ends up getting sued here. So, you know, this, this contract, yes, we don't, we don't like, it's not like a cartoon when like the contract's over and you like rip up the contract, like uh, these, a lot of these clauses end up surviving, right? So what about non-compete clauses? Are there, there going to be clauses where you can't go to a rival school or somebody in the same conference? I mean, that used to be a, a rule that if you wanted to transfer right. within the same conference, that the school had to give a release specifically for that. You couldn't just freely transfer. I mean, now with the way that the transfer rules are and the way that the portal operates, who knows? And that's clearly not being enforced in the way that it was before. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if if you're being paid. I mean, theoretically, they could put something in there that would say that. Dan, if you don't mind, I have one more question for the group that we were discussing during the class. So putting this entire Rashada situation together with the news last week, you mentioned it, that the NCAA is changing their standard of review to a more circumstantial, they're taking more circumstantial evidence because they were having trouble getting people to go on the record. And we've discussed the various reasons for why that may be, not wanting to overturn the apple cart and all of that. But if you could base it off of a news story or something like this, where, uh, you know, it is well-sourced, do you think that the University of Florida is in possible trouble with the NCAA? Do you think that those collectives could get hammered? Because the new NCAA guidance is specifically supposed to target the collectives. Well, I think this is probably a question for Pete, but do we do we think that Against that Florida is going to get in trouble. I think if they weren't under investigation, they probably are after this article comes out. I don't think that's a shock to anybody. Pete, what do you think here? I mean, I, I, you, you probably know better yeah, than I do. I think it's a given. I think that there's already been conversations in Gainesville that, about the NCAA investigating. And if Jaden Jurashada has not been interviewed yet, he will be interviewed. That That's definitely going to happen. And I mean, The Athletic did a very nice job putting the numbers out there and from my understanding, that is circumstantial evidence, right? So the NCAA could definitely open a case strictly off of that article. And there's the presumption now. So it's proven, it's, it's guilty until proven innocent with the NCAA is going to enforce NIL now. So yeah, I mean, you will get the, the, the track record of requesting for the release. And then you also put together what this story now adds to the conversation. I, I would say that he, he appears guilty at the moment. You want to talk about circumstantial evidence. You just said that you think that the contract's date was November 10th, right? November 10th, right. 2022. Right. National letter of intent day. Signing day, yes. College football national signing day. The early one when he signed was actually December 21st. Oh, so it was before. So it was, it was a month before, month and a half before almost. Pete, I have a question for you. I know a story that you've been working on. We are talking about Florida. We're talking about Miami. We're talking about Jaden Rashada. Do we have any word on what the changes to the actual Florida law might be? Spent a lot of time talking about Florida on the show. Is there any any word that we might be getting uh, some modifications to that law down the pike? Yeah, so um, actually today, Wednesday, so SB 200 passed in a regular session in a committee and then uh, HP7 passed in a special session and both would basically repeal that Florida NIL law that was passed in 2020 and it would allow like coaches and athletic directors to basically help facilitate NIL deals which current legislators down in Florida are arguing that the current bill puts 
Florida school is at a disadvantage. Would have so, been helpful to have this uh, this law in the books uh, for Rashada. Maybe it was in place like three months ago. Yeah. So the the other interesting component of this is Chip Lamarco, one of the House reps who helped create the the House bill, is adamant that he wants the NCAA uh, ban on recruiting inducements to still be in effect. So basically, the hope is for the Florida state golf coach to tell his golfers that he heard at the country club, that there's like a possible sponsorship opportunity. They don't want recruiting inducements to go on in the state. Now that's what they're saying publicly behind closed doors. I'm not, I'm not sure what the the point of it is. It's a full repeal of the law. From my understanding at this moment. So the house was in special session today. They could vote on it as early as tomorrow, I believe. Um, And it, it could hit the governor's desk next week. It would be a repeal of the law, and then the House bill could be then voted on before the session closes in May, um, and that would put it into effect. Let's hold here for a second. So uh, assuming that's the law, they want to repeal it, that's fine. Alabama repealed their law once upon a time. I think there's a reason to not have an NIL law. So in any event, where my mind goes, and we've talked about one of these names, John Ruiz. So just so people understand the, the power dynamic that's going on. You could be a collective, right? And collectives get their monies by, you know, maybe like little individual donors, people sending like $50 a month. You have people pledging a lot of money to a collective. Or you could have someone like a John Ruiz, who, at least my understanding, he does not operate through the collective. He's just kind of his own ecosystem. John Ruiz, if he wants to pay an athlete directly, he'll pay an athlete directly. Now, with the new NCA regs, now we're in this kind of subset of the collective era, which... Pete, uh, I know you have some thoughts on, and Mike, you'll see where I'm going with this. But like in the subset of the era, the school can make one collective like the official collective of the school. And they can actually direct fundraising efforts to one particular collective. So what the NCA did, whether purposefully or not, they've kind of allowed the collectives to be controlled by these schools. Because if you want to do right by the school, you'll, you know, jump, jump in whatever hoops and, you know, they'll say it's jump, you say how high, whatever. And you could be the official collective. If you are one of three collectives in a particular jurisdiction, like I think um, Ohio State has three collectives, I think Florida State has, has a handful. If you're not doing right by the school and they anoint a different collective, the official, guess what? Those other two collectives, they're probably, you know, out of, out of it, right? They're not going to be considered anymore. They're going to wrap up shop at some point. So you can control the collectives, but you can't control still a guy like John Ruiz who has no affiliation to the collective. He's just a really wealthy guy that wants to do right by his school. Mike, that brings me to your alma mater. We're getting out of Florida for a second. You ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. What are your thoughts on Adam Weitzman? There's no context. What are your thoughts on Adam Weitzman? He's a big deal. I mean, he's as of 2022, he's a billionaire. He's, you know, a scrap metal guy from Syracuse that's made a lot of, lot of money. And he's known, he, I mean, before the NIL stuff, he's really known as the guy who kind of brings celebrities to the Syracuse game. He'll sit courtside. Pete Davidson was with him a couple of uh, last basketball season. He always is sitting next to Mello whenever Mello comes. Not hard tickets to get given that you guys only fill it up for Duke. Assault. Absolute assault. Well, seeing as the dome fits 60,000 fans... <laughs> How many? How many fans can fit in Duke? Twenty, maybe, maybe fifteen. Nine. Yeah, Nine. exactly. Yeah. So, but it's always full. We don't need any. The dome, they only use half the dome for basketball games. I know it looks sad. 
I feel bad for the fans when Duke does come because you're sitting on the other side and you have to look at the jumbo trying to watch the game because you can't even see the court. Okay, <laughs> enough with this Duke Syracuse banter. Both of your schools suck. Okay, let's just let's go. <laughs> no, um, I mean Weitzman has has been pressured now because he is you know known in infamy now as the you know the wealthy you know investor of Syracuse athletics, Syracuse sports, Syracuse just business, Syracuse in, in general. And now when NIL kind of went buck wild they were kind of leaning towards Weitzman and when I say they I'm talking about even like the Syracuse fan base was saying like it's tough to get basketball players up to Syracuse nobody wants to come to the frigid north of Syracuse to play basketball ACC's been competitive Bayheim's, you know it, he's an infamous coach here but they're just the talent wasn't coming up here so NIL was like kind of like the fan base is like oh Weitzman, let's pay for some guys to come to Syracuse. Like, let's do it. And that's kind of where we're sitting now. Let me read the quote from Beheim, which made a lot of rounds this past week. So Coach Jim Beheim, you know, uh, one of the legendary coaches, he's giving a theory, speaking of Syracuse uh, and Duke and Villanova, uh, as to why some coaches were on their way out. Quote, this is an awful place we're in in college basketball. Pittsburgh bought a team. Okay, fine. My brackets big donor close brackets guys are they talking about weitzman before i keep going yeah, yeah. yeah i think so talks about it comma but he doesn't give anyone any money period nothing period not one guy period our guys make like 20k wake forest bought a team miami bought a team it's like really this is where we are that's really where we are it's only going to get worse he added quote it's crazy that's why those guys got out. That's why Jay Wright got out. That's why my, Mike Krzyzewski got out. That's the reason they got out. The transfer portal and everything is nuts. And Beheim would go on to apologize the next day. But all of a sudden, Syracuse is in the middle of it. So in that one that one comment there, we have Miami, we have Wake Forest, we have Pittsburgh. It's like, if you live in a glass house, right, don't throw stones here. So I, I think there's a lot of eyeballs now looking at Syracuse all of a sudden. But I think that was the glass house comments. I was seeing that too. I think that's not just this year. That's from before because of the accusations that they made of Syracuse buying players to come long, long before NIL. So it, I think that's really where the glass house was because I guess people were potentially saying that they had information that Bayheim, you know, had guys, you know, paying for players before NIL was even a thing. But Bayheim kind of just goes off now. He says what he wants because he's got the he probably has the strongest job security in like all of the NCAA basketball. They're not going to oust him. They're just letting him be. You know, they're letting him run his career out. That However, same interview, he said, "I decide when I want to step away." Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. He because well, okay. Because to be fair, again for him, and I'll let you know, I'm biased. I mean, I'm a huge Syracuse fan. After being there, I was. Oh, at- really? You're a big Syracuse fan, Mike. <laughs> Uh, let me say though, I wasn't before I went to the university. So if that let, let's, it's not that like that literally fan. changes nothing. No, on. so he just hasn't enjoyed any good times. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've only suffered. I've only suffered. <laughs> I'm, call me a Cleveland Browns fan. I think I think what Beheim has gotten for the last two years is when he going to retire? When he going to retire? When he going to retire? His both his sons were playing for him. They're like, oh, your sons are gone now. Are you going to retire? Fans are upset with him because they're not having successful years. They're barely scraping their way into a tournament, barely getting through the first round, if get, if not losing in the first round. So I think in terms of success of the program, he's probably sick of hearing like when you're out. So at that point, I think that comment was like, I'm not leaving. Like, just like, let me be like, I'll tell you when I'm going to leave. But in terms of like the NIL stuff, I it was already known that, that Beheim was probably not going to be 
upfront about it. He's an old school coach, right? He he is in that that cast of characters that had the old, you know, the old fashioned basketball, right? Way, way back. I mean, he he's the oldest out of that entire bunch where he's talking about Shashevsky, he's talking about Roy Wood. He's the oldest out of all of them. And they're gone before him. So I don't know, maybe, maybe in an emotional state, he might have revealed some truth there. Maybe they did say, like, I don't want to touch NIL with a 10-foot pole, so I'll let me get out while I can. There could be some truth in that comment. At the same time, I think he was making offhanded, con- you know, out-of-context comments about programs that were not true. Like, damn, we were just talking about Pitt's coach, Brandon Knight, uh, former NBA player, Brandon Knight. He, he was saying, like, this is just sour grapes, like Beheim saying, you know, we're buying teams. We didn't spend any money on it. Like, you know, he should talk because he's done this years ago. Like when, back when I was in college. So there, there's, it's, it, it is, it is a bit of sour grapes. Right? And Bayham's probably pissed that they're losing and other teams are having the opportunities to to pay these bigger players, bigger markets. Syracuse is not a big market. It's a small market, even though it's a big school, it's a, it's a, it's a tiny town. It's a small city, small market. And, Players don't want to come up here, even if you throw thirteen million at them, or you'd have to throw thirteen million at them just to get them. Yeah, up. I was going to say they'd come for thirteen million <laughs> just to get them yeah. up. Here. Just to jump in real quick, I think that tracking back to the Bayheim con- comment, he did throw Miami under the bus, and this can be a conversation for another day. But John Ruiz did announce that he had signed Nigel Pack to an NIL deal, like within hours of him transferring to Miami last year from Kansas State. So I I would assume that's where Bayheim's trying to grab from on that one. I also think it's interesting, right? So the first 19 months of NIL have just been so college football focused, and all of a sudden it seems like we have our first real college basketball controversy, and Bayheim finds himself in the middle of it. And this all comes right. So there's the four-star from New York City, Elijah Moore, who has committed there in like the past three weeks, I believe. And like days before his commitment, he he hopped on a private jet with Adam Weitzman and, and flew to a Syracuse game and sat with a few rappers. And I mean, NIL has been a big part of his recruitment. Yeah, Weitzman, Weitzman tweeted out about that. He was up front about more. I remember seeing his comments about that. Can I ask you a question? This is, again, for the room. I mean, they were figuring out the NIL laws, I guess, on the fly. Let's say Elijah Moore. Let's pretend it's any any recruit. And, you know, for New York, New York allows high school NIL. So it's the second state in the country to allow it. I was looking today. I think, Pete, I think this is your reporting. I think 28 states have allowed high school NIL in some way, shape, or form. I was looking. 26 high school associations. So, yeah, I believe like 28 now. Here's my my question for the room. Let's say you sign some type of third-party marketing deal, right? So um, high school NIL, you're using someone's name, image, and likeness to make some form of compensation, okay? I think we all kind of understand what that is, some type of marketing deal. There's some type of quid pro quo. This is for us. There's four gentlemen who are follow the space pretty closely. Let's say there's not a quid pro quo. Let's just say you hop on a private plane and you're bestowed with some benefit, but you're not really giving anything in exchange. Does, is that a violation? There's no quid pro quo. Were you hopping on a private plane? It's not traditional NIL. What, what are you getting back? I don't know. Anyone who says that they know the answer to that 100%, I, I think is is just blustering. I, I, I don't think that that is a, a question that is clear in terms of what is and isn't allowed under the rules. And I, I think that anybody who's been following this space like the four of us have, you find that that is the case over and over again. So I'll I'll ask, this is another gray area. So Weitzman specifically has offered a million dollars to a five-star basketball prospect and a five-star football prospect. Nobody specific, just if one is willing to move to Syracuse, New York, 
then they can get a million dollars annually. Now, that is the same sort of thing as this Gainesville living requirement, right? Also the same thing that Charlie Batch did, except Charlie Batch put Caleb Williams' name on it. And they think it was a million dollars if Caleb Williams comes. Is that any different? Put someone's name on it? No, no, no. I'm saying- A generic inducement? He was no, but with with Caleb Williams, he wasn't saying like, come live in Ypsilanti and I'll give you a million dollars. No, he's saying like, come to Eastern Michigan. That's that's different. No, I'm saying like the way that they are getting around the inducement charges is by saying like, live in Gainesville, live in Syracuse. And so do you see the NCAA policing that any differently? Like, how could you say that that is inducement, even though for us, like it clearly is, right? Like, there's only one school in Syracuse. There's only right one school in yeah. So, yeah. so let's let's play this out. And this is where I wanted to take this conversation. And you know, if we have time for Johnson and some NLRB stuff at the end, we'll we'll fit it in. Here's here's where I think the NCA has to be mindful, right? I think they can control the collectives. Like I just saw, LSU has now has an official collective, and Alabama has an official collective right and there are some smaller schools that just have one collective so whether the official or not there's the only one if you have a guy like weitzman or like ruiz who for whatever reason does something that runs afoul in the ncaa's eyes and the school didn't necessarily condone it they didn't put their blessing on it but still the thing happened the recent regs or the recent guidance that came out with respect to the ncaa the ncaa could still punish the school right if they were conferred with a benefit even indirectly from one of these guys so that i think is the fear that you know to some extent you don't the, the schools don't really have control over these guys so here's here's my question right um if you are and i guess mike this is maybe it's for you it's like i mean adam weitzman's doing a lot of good things for syracuse right i think objectively but i don't know if he ends up getting the school in trouble right if, if syracuse is getting investigated because of adam weitzman miami's getting invested because of john ruiz and the collective over it in florida and Whoever else they're still investigating. I think they were investigating BYU for a period of time with that built bar nonsense that happened. I think, Pete, what's the number? 12, 12 schools are under investigation? I know I saw that somewhere. Do you have a I've number? I've seen 12. I, I don't have a solid number, but I saw 12. A lot. It's a lot. And I mean, do you, guys, do we think that the NCAA is just going to say like, you know what? Yeah, everyone's off the hook. Don't worry. No one gets in trouble. Like someone's going to get in trouble here. And it might be because of one of these, I'm going to call them rogue players that are just not controlled by the school. Mike, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? you think that, that Weitzman's leading you down a path? I don't know. Weitzman's just being pressured by everyone in Syracuse. Like, I, I, as much as it's his own doing, right, I feel like he does want Syracuse. He is rogue. He's not a part of the collective in Syracuse. He's the, the collective's the 315 collective. He's not a part of that. He, he's his own guy. He always has been. He He's always tried to bring some sort of popularity and presence and celebrity kind of status to Syracuse to maintain its – I don't know, relevance, but the scary part about all of this, we keep saying wild, wild west and no rules and all this stuff is, the, is I guess, collectives and NIL. Everybody's operating under the, the guise or the misunderstanding that there's not going to be retroactive punishment. Like they were like, oh, like NCAA is not handling this. So we can do what we want while we still can. And then once they make the rules, then we'll kind of fizzle back to whatever they say, which is also shame on the NCAA for causing this chaos. So it's just it's just kind of you throw your hands up in the air and you're like, NCAA says nothing. They don't do anything. They push it to Congress. Mark Emmert runs away because he doesn't even know how to put together some sort of legislation. And then you have 
the collectives or the donors who are like, hey, like, let's get in here now. Let's get some recruits for our school. And then now they're now the school's getting slapped on the wrist because there's there's no guidance. So I don't know. It's just a confusing realm. It's like the strong hand of the NCAA turned into a pile of feathers and now it's coming back to to haunt them. I, I don't know. I think, Mike, that it is actually a fair assumption that, you know, the NCAA won't do anything. I think that the NCAA's fear of antitrust litigation has been very clear, especially in the wake of Alston. Like, I, I think people always conflate those things, right? Like the casual college sports fan might think like, oh, because of Alston, they're not doing it because the Supreme Court said that they can't police it. It's not necessarily that, but it does make it pretty clear that antitrust is not a winning area for the NCAA and that they are at risk of losing to the schools over and over again. And so I'm thinking maybe even though they're hiring all of this staff and they're saying that they're investigating things, I mean, they said that they were investigating Built Bar, TiVo, all uh, those three like team-wide deals. They said that they were I think, yeah, there's a lot. They were investigating last year and nothing has come of it so far. I mean, it still could, but I'm thinking that they're, they're kind of saying these things in a hope to, to rein things in without actually having to enforce any rules because they're feckless. They've done this to themselves in, in the way that they've abdicated all responsibility for dozens of years now. The NCAA is toothless. I think it's as simple as that. And, and I think it's a believe it one. We see it kind of situation and I mean they can they can bulk up that staff as much as they want but until they hand out a violation I don't think you're going to see any of these collectives stop their their actions and what they've done already in the first 19 months and so- take it a step further it's not just handing down the uh, infraction or or the charges they have to actually be able to enforce it right like they yes. were going to hammer Carolina and then they didn't because they lost in court over and over again Carolina yep. just hired better lawyers than the the NCAA had. Yeah, no, completely. And um, I think it is naive to think that that the inducement game is, is going to stop because that they come out with new guidance. They can come out with new guidance every month and until they do anything, nobody is, is going to be faced. That's why they're threatening this precedent. They're, they're not threatening the punishment. They're threatening the precedent. They're threatening Correct. that something could happen. So the, you were right, Taryn. They're reining it back in and threatening it. But like you said, Pete, they're toothless, so they're not going to dig in. You know, I think you're right. I think collectives are going to continue on. But what's interesting, you know, Taryn, you just mentioned it before with, with Johnson and, and the fear of the higher power, the Supreme Court cases that we're seeing. You know, we talked about we've talked about Alston you know, religiously on this podcast before. But the latest attack, and we've also talked about this, too, is Johnson versus the NCAA, which is currently in the Third Circuit, which if you've been following us for a while, you're like, why is this in the Third Circuit? Because everybody knows the Ninth Circuit is the happy place for all of these uh, NCAA cases. So we've got a Third Circuit case here. This is a case, you know, here's the here's the the quick one liner here that this is going to be, you know, student athletes wants to want to be employees. Now, this isn't the first attack for student athletes to be employees before. I mean, there have been two others, Berger versus NCAA and Dawson versus NCAA. Berger was out of the Seventh Circuit and Dawson was out of the Ninth Circuit. So again, back in the Ninth Circuit. Ninth Circuit is the friendly, happy place for cases against the NCAA. 
However, Dawson was against the players, you know, against the student athletes because they said that student athletes were not employees and that the universities and the conferences were not employers. How they're regulatory bodies that maintain the, the athletic association, but they, they don't employ the student athletes. Berger was much of the same in the Seventh Circuit, but Berger was Penn, University of Penn, the women's track team. They, they wanted to uh, say that they were student, they, the student athletes were employees and they should be paid, you know, minimum. I think it was just minimum wage was what they were saying. They should be paid a salary. And again, the Seventh Circuit um, said that they didn't really plead any injury here and, and that there was no determination that there was any injury by them not being, you know, student athlete versus an employee of the university. So here we have uh, a third circuit case that is still here. They haven't, it hasn't been shut down and it's, uh, it's, it's potential for student athletes to be determined as employees. But the issue here, and, and again, I'm going to pitch it to you, Taryn, is we, we could have a circuit split. You know, if we have the seventh circuit and the ninth circuit, and now we have the third circuit, if the third circuit goes against the seventh and the ninth, and they say that athletes actually could be eligible to become employees under the Fair Labor uh, Standard Act. Then we have an issue here that would most likely have to rise up to the Supreme Court because you can have different regions of the United States that are now fighting over, you know, what is the right law here. Um, so th it's an interesting, you know, premise here. Um, it's definitely gained momentum, especially after what we've seen with Austin. Mike, that's very well said. And uh, Pete, I, you're going to get a little bit of a torts class here. I always think that it's fun when the basic legal concepts are actually apparent. And so from a simplistic view, if you're thinking about whether somebody is an employee, you're thinking about a few basic questions. So does the company control or have the right to control what the worker is doing, what the worker does on the job? Do they control the business aspects, meaning like when the worker would be paid, when the expenses are reimbursed, who provides the tools and supplies. And so if you just think about those two questions, you think about how practices are scheduled, weightlifting is scheduled, conditioning practices are scheduled, the games are scheduled, they have to use certain helmets, jerseys, all of these things, they kind of point towards control. But the written contract is such the benefits are limited and they're not supposed to, the student athletes are supposed to have an understanding that they are not entitled to further compensation. So it will be up to the student athletes in this case, I think, to overcome that. But from a NLRB perspective also, and we've discussed that in the past, I think that the memo that was put out last year by Jennifer Abruzzo still uh, points towards this uh, being favorably looked upon by the NC, uh, by the NLRB. Couple things, Taryn. That was a beautifully articulated, very technical answer. So I'll give you a nine point nine on the technical scale. You know what? What's at debate without without getting into this oral argument scheduled for February fifteenth in that Johnson v. NCA case? As you guys know, I represent uh, my alma mater, Fordham uh, University. So I'm gonna be a little coy on my comments with respect to that case, Fordham. Uh, one, of, one of the parties in that case among among many. But by and large, what is up right now, we should do a little bit of a legal lesson for our law students, lawyers that need a refresher or our non-lawyers. Guys, interlocutory appeals. How about that? How about them interlocutory appeals? So you can have an appeal from a final decision. That's when like, I don't know, someone wins, someone loses. You can appeal that up. But interlocutory appeals is an appeal taken from like the middle of the case. The case is not over. So the last decision or last activity on the district court log at the uh, at the federal level, the trial court level, lowest level, 
is uh, 2022. I think it's actually like a year ago, almost to date. So this case has been bogged down in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, trying to figure out whether or not the NCA and the school should have won on their motion to dismiss the complaint in the first instance as to whether employees can actually be student athletes and, and vice versa, whether employers technically the NCA can even be an employer. Taryn, as you mentioned, this issue comes down to control, to benefits conferred. It's a really interesting question, but right now what's up on appeal in the Third Circuit is just whether under the FSLA, and there's a couple couple issues up on appeal, but the main question is whether legally by definition, it's student athletes are impossible to be employees. So somebody somebody asked me, I was talking to a friend in the media space, like, you know, could this change what the NCA does at the drop of a hat? Could this change anything? And again, you know, uh, NCA has done stranger things. Sometimes they're somewhat unpredictable. But, you know, if the NCA loses this right in the case, the decision to deny their uh, motion to dismiss is is approved. Right. And I'm using generic terms. People can follow this case is to go back down to the district court. The case is going to proceed. Right. The NCA is going to get a couple bites at the apple. Right. You have to go through the whole process at the district court level. And then if you lose, then there could be an appeal from the final judgment up to the Third Circuit. And that's, guys, how we got all the way to Austin going to the Supreme Court. It's a case that went through final judgment at the district court level, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then all the way up to the Supreme Court. So I say all of that, say that we are not really that close to a decision to Johnson. So we can we can have a lot, you know, like Austin. We talked about Austin, I think, for like know, a couple months, a year leading up to it. Johnson's going to be a very important case. Taryn, as you mentioned, the NLRB has charged USC, the Pac-12, Getting two kind of uh, bullets pointed at this employment question, whether the NCA will have to recognize student athletes as employees. You know, we're doing it through the courts. We're doing it through the NLRB. So, yeah, I'm not sure how much there is here. And I'm not sure how relevant it is to our audience when we're like, we're so far out. But, you know, it's a big, big case to follow. Pete, I think you, you're you kind of following the filings here. We have any uh, interesting parties jumping in here? Yeah, I think I think you guys have covered it really well. I just wanted to hop in and mention, right, the SEC filed amicus briefs in June. And and it's just another reminder of how much these these conferences don't want to see athletes classified as employees. If if that ever were to happen, you're going to see the schools and the conferences as joint employers. I think the conversation for how that all like looks, the infra- infrastructure of it, that's for another day. But it, it it's very obvious that so many parties are fighting against this and they don't want athletes classified as employees. And the example that's been given a few times, right? So it's like the student worker, right? So a, a football player should be compensated like a student worker. So the numbers that have been put out there is so roughly like $500 a week. So like a college football player would make roughly like $2,000 if you factor in the seven hour NCAA limit in practices and the game. So how it all looks, I mean, you guys said it were a few, few, maybe months to years out. I'm not really sure what this will look like, but so many parties just, just working against this to happen for athletes. It's an interesting model. I mean, if you think about it, them being determined employees is just the tip of the iceberg because then you have a domino effect of insurance, you've got workers' compensation, you've got so many other things that kind of attach to that that term. Unionization. Employee unionization. Oh my God. Yeah. What I found interesting about this case, and, and we can wrap this up. That's that's pretty much you know most of everything that we've got here. We're we're far out from from everything. But what I found most interesting when I was looking into this is I remember Judge Wilkin in her 110 page decision in Alston where they were making the arguments of the differentiation between student athletes and students. And the argument was, and remember Alston was about permissible benefits, you know, educate educationally related permissible benefits and whatnot and, and the restrictions on those. And the argument was that 
We don't want to make the regular student body population feel secluded or different from the student athlete population and body. And that was the argument. And Judge Wilkin, in her response to that was, that line has already been made because Taryn, exactly what you just said, the regimented, the schedule, the the enforcement and restriction of student athletes and what they do every single day is that differentiation. And I think that argument in particular might come back around because you think about what student athletes as employees of the university under the athletic umbrella, right? If you're dividing the university into different umbrellas, right, of, of employment, You've got student athletes who they're the only ones that are able to go to certain weight rooms, certain gyms, certain buildings, right? Students can't do that. And the students themselves aren't deemed employees. So there's some sort of line of, of demarcation there. So I, I think that can come around. So there's a lot of interesting things here. And we could talk about student athletes being employees uh, until we're blue in the face. But I think this is a good one to keep an eye on. And, and we'll, uh, you know, next week is the oral arguments you said, Dan. So it's definitely something to follow I got a bold prediction as we we wrap up this this piece with our little fun NIL roundtable. By the way, Pete, having fun with us? Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it. I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, it's it's a high level conversation. I mean, this is my my bold prediction. I don't know how bold it is. June of 2021, right before we had the Olson era, we had these two congressional hearings as to whether Congress was going to step in. Seemed to be a lot of momentum at the time, and then I don't and kind of lost momentum. And then you've had in the past couple months, you've had guys like George Klyavkov and and Greg Sankey, you know, asking for a federal bill. The one thing that we did not talk about, which I imagine we'll talk about in a, in a subsequent episode, we are. Tax season. Tax season upon us. Guys, we pay the bills here. We have sponsors here. I should remind reminder, we haven't done it yet. Our podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the entire galaxy. We'll talk about Themis at a later point, but the reason I bring it up, tax season. I had to speak to uh, Conic Detrimental as a tax guy. I had to give up, uh, you know, we had to give up our 1099s. We have to send stuff over there, right? This will be the first full cycle for the collective era, for the NIL era. So everyone's like, oh, federal government's not going to step in. I, I can assure you, that if tax season doesn't go uh, as planned, we don't really know how much money these collectives have. If there tend to be a, a trend across different collectives for athletes, right? People really understand how much money is going into this space. Maybe all of a sudden the federal government's going to want to get involved here. We Another topic we did not talk about in the show, there are certain states, and we're not going to call them out, where their athlete aging laws don't really make any sense as applied to NIL right? You have to reach out to the athlete ahead of time, right? It's, it's kind of illogical. We have MLBPA certified agents. We, in the last episode, we had Matt Timpanic on. We have NFL PA certified agents. We still don't have our international athletes making any money. Could there be an NCA certified agent? Could there be a federal law that helps solve this international issue? Yes. I, I tend to think that tax season is going to be our reason to, to get involved here. So I'm going to make a bold prediction in the next, not that bold, next 12 months, I do think the federal government gets involved here at a minimum. I think we're going to have uh, some congressional hearings on this. I just think it's I think it's overdue. I understand that the Congress is dealing with a lot of stuff right now, but they took two days out in June of 2021 to have some congressional hearings. I think with the amount of money, we're talking about 13, 8.5, you know, 13 million dollars here, 8 million here. There's so much money to have a field com- completely be unregulated, you know, and unpoliced. So Let's see if the NCA does anything, but I think the Fed feds are going to pop in at some point. Pete, you were were fantastic. You can check out Pete's work on on three. You know, Pete, we'll get you back for part two at some point. I I have a sneaking suspicion between Johnson on February fifteenth and uh, you know more people dropping out of uh, deals at schools that 
uh, we might be having you back on soon to the extent extent you want to come back on. Yeah, no, totally. I appreciate it, guys. Have a good one. Okay. Thanks, Pete. Yep, you bet. Thanks, guys. Have a nice night. We do it each and every week, except when it's the bye week and there are no games. It is the Better Edge segment with Colin Farrell. So, Mike Terran, we don't usually do a quad box for the Better Edge segment, but we wanted to apply all of the pressure in the world to Colin. Because, Colin, if you blow this pick, you're not coming on until the start of next football season. So don't blow it. Your insults and threats have not worked all season. So let's just roll the tape. Once again, as always, deliver in the championship round with the Chiefs getting that eking out of cover. They were minus two and a half. That's where I took them. They went on the last second field goal by Butker. But let's just say the gravy train stops there for Andy Reid. Literally at Golden Corral in Arizona this week. It's going to stop literally gravy train. But uh, and figuratively on the football field because it's always been and will always will be. My NFC team, as I like to call because I'm still going to be a diehard Jets fan, but my NFC team, having gone to school in South Jersey, a lot of Birds fans, Sixers. But listen, the Eagles organization is a class act, and it's something that I hope the Jets aspire to be. The Jets, Joe, uh, Joe Douglas, their general manager right now, came from the Eagles front office. So, look, I'm hoping we're building blocks, building the right steps um, to aspiring to be. Look at Colin, you're a betting guy, right? Use our promo code CONDUCT, get $20 for free on Better Edge. We just let you go for a minute. You did not give us any analysis. You said they're a class organization. They're great. Yeah. You did the great exactly. going to end in Arizona. It's Philadelphia, classy. Those are the two words that are always used together. I have not heard any analysis. This is you betting with your heart and not your head. Conlon. Yeah. Okay. Because I, you were making the picks that won all year, right? That would have to be correct because you're telling me I didn't use analysis. I'm sorry. That's false. <laughs> um. So the Kansas City uh, Chiefs are not the play. No, the Philadelphia Eagles minus two is the play. Lock it in, lock it up. I'm going to finish the year hot, and then you're not going to know what to do because these calls are going to stop, and then you're going to be heartbroken. You're starting to call me. You're thinking about me. Um, and listen, I was always it was a magical ride, but I just go off into the sunset. I'm going to Disney World like all the Super Bowl champions. Mike, you're here. You've heard the pick. The pick, the official pick, is in from Colin. What's the what's the spread? What line did you find on on our friends uh, with Better Edge? What's the number on our great site Better Edge? The line is Philly minus two. Minus two is the pick, Mike. Former employee of the Philadelphia Eagles. You like that pick? Minus two. That, I, yeah, I like the pick. Go Birds. I do want to say in the last whatever, how many years? Is it like 10, the last 10 Super Bowls? The winner of the coin toss has lost the Super Bowl. I saw that going around Twitter. So if you're late to the game to make the pick, whoever wins the coin toss, bet the opposite. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> Only metric that's gone against me is something that like 15 of the last 17 Super Bowls, the team with the white jerseys. There you go. One, and the Chief. I know that was going to be Terrence Nuggets. Let me just knock that off right now. That's ridiculous. And it doesn't matter. Philly, again, they're going to be a unstoppable force that Kansas City runs into. See, Conlon, I'm very alarmed at this pick. There is zero analysis that you have provided other than that you like the Eagles and you're from South Jersey. That's it. I'm not from South Jersey. I went to school down in South Jersey. But don't worry about it. So what are you questioning my methods now? At the rate um, I'm hitting at, you're questioning it now? Listen, you don't want to know how hot dogs are made, right? You just eat the hot dog at the ballpark. Just eat the hot dog. How now, many hot dogs have you eaten today? At least two. Much like a ballpark hot dog, your pick is gross and rubbery and not fit for human consumption. I'm going cheap. <laughs> I got the Chiefs. I think I took them. Uh, they were like plus 112 or something like that. Just straight up money line. Plus one twelve. I've won a no, fair this year, okay. and uh, and so 
I think the Chiefs are going to continue my winning streak. Well, this is it. This is the bet now. So, Conlon, listen, if you get this right, you can come back on the show. Uh, and if you get it wrong, Taryn's taking your job. So, I mean, that's, that's okay. Right. okay. Um, boys, excellent job. This will put this episode in the books. Conlon, uh, you missed a fun episode on NIL. You don't get enough of Conlon on our show. Conlon has his own show, Bench Points with Conlon Farrell. He's out. He's uh, ripping goggles off of ski masks, and he's running around masquerading at events. Are you going to get us some uh, Big East press credentials? We were working on it? Yeah, we've been working on it. We got we'll have a separate conversation about that. But I want to be there with my goggles on, preparing these questions. So I want I want to have Jim Beheim in a freaking grinder because that guy has lost it now in the media. He sees those green goggles. That's his. That's the the uh, mark of death right there. Bold prediction: I can make Jim Beheim retire. Okay, through, through uh, one media tech. Bold prediction: If they listen to this audio, we are not going to get credentialed. So let's not threaten. One of the all-time winningest coach in the history of college basketball, Conlon. Listen, it's all about who's winning right now. I'm winning right now. Mike, no comment. Mike, Mike's got Bayham's back. He, he does not have your back in this scenario. Okay, guys, anything else before we put this in the books? Go Birds. Go Birds. Philly, Philly. Go Chiefs. <laughs> okay, that'll do it for another episode of Conduct Detrimental. For myself, Dan Wallach, Mike Lawson, Terrence Sharma, and the Conlon Farrell. We will see you all next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. 